0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Defending the Faith, with a message titled Science and Faith, Part 2. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: I'm reading Psalm 19, 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. You know, in this psalm, David declares his certainty that nature itself, when observed and studied, declares the glory of the one who made all things. David is convinced that God speaks through the creation. Paul thought so as well when he proclaimed that the eternal power and divine nature of God is evident to all in the things that have been made. You were engaged in a three-week study of apologetics, or giving a defense for our faith, to all who would ask us to know the hope that is within us. And so yesterday I began a discussion about science and faith, and today I want to bring that discussion into the modern era. Is it really true that science and faith are on a collision course? You know, yesterday I talked about where that modern impression came from, and many hold that Galileo would never have been persecuted were it not for a contradiction between the Bible and science. But as we've seen, that's simply not true. Were it not for the fact that the Roman church had abandoned scripture for Aristotelian philosophy, there would have been no conflict over Galileo. Furthermore, Galileo himself thought that were it not for the jealousy of the scientists around him, this matter would never have come to the kind of conflict that eventually ensued. And so not only does the church need to take responsibility for false religion, but scientists also need to take responsibility for false science. Today I want to talk about why the perception that faith and science are in conflict continues to be an issue in our day there are three 20th century figures who have irrevocably changed the thinking of the Western world. I, I sometimes call them the, the three modern gods of the Western world. They're Freud, Marx, and Darwin. Freud changed the way we think about sex and family and morality. And Marx changed the way we think about history and economics and civilization. And Darwin changed the way we think about science and of creation. But all three fundamentally changed the way we think about God. And as strange as it is to say, even though in many ways these three have been seriously discredited, their influence remains profound. Now, it's not my intention to speak about either Freud or Marx. We're talking about science and faith. And ever since Darwin, many people simply believe that the science of the day and the Bible are at odds. And they believe that faith is the world of subjectivity and science is the world of objectivity. Scientists tell us what exists and people of faith tell us what they believe. At least that's how the story gets told in our day. But the idea that scientists are objective and don't bring their personal biases into the process, well, that's been long disproven. Scientists really aren't supermen and superwomen who never bring their prejudices to their field. So let's consider what I like to call two enormous elephants in the room. You know, most of us have heard the phrase the elephant in the room. So you can imagine coming into a room and everything's smashed. Chairs, tables, desks, dishes, windows. There are holes in the wall. It's a mess. And a group of investigators set out to discover why this is. And they come up with a number of theories, and none of the theories are conclusive. But in their investigation, for some strange reason, they decide it's best never to discuss the elephant that's sitting in the middle of the room. You know, as long as the elephant is never discussed, all the theories in the world will not ultimately satisfy the question that's being asked. What's the reason for the mess? See, the same is true when it comes to the issues of faith and science. Why the conflict? There are, in fact, two enormous elephants in the room. So first, let's take note of the role of worldviews. A worldview is a way of seeing the world. A worldview is an inclination of the heart, a framework through which we interpret everything we see and everything that happens. Let's use a simple example. Imagine you can't find your wallet, so you try to retrace your steps. Did I leave it in the restaurant? Did it accidentally fall out of my pocket or my purse? Did someone steal it out of my pocket or purse? Or did I leave it under all those papers on my desk at the office? But notice what you don't consider. Did it just dematerialize into thin air? Or did that wicked she-goddess take it to her throne room? I mean, you never even consider that because that's not your worldview. That's not your basic framework through which you interpret reality. See, your worldview tells you in advance before you even consider the evidence of what's possible and what's not. You would never consider that a wicked goddess is jinxing you. It's your worldview that determines what you see and what you expect before you even look. So consider for a moment the question of the design in nature. Scientists are now discovering the immense complexity of all living things. For instance, Darwin didn't have access to such things as, well, DNA. His theory simply is a more primitive theory and no longer works as an explanation of everything. But now, because of marvelous complexity of all living organisms, some scientists are now using the phrase irreducible complexity, that is, if you take only a few parts away from millions of complex interdependent mechanisms that make up life, the whole organism simply will not work. In other words, all of the millions of parts all have to be there, all have to be functioning or there is no purpose for it and the organism simply won't work. So what is it that we're looking at when we see these things? Well, your answer to that question will depend upon your worldview. If you're a naturalist in which by faith you believe in advance before you even consider the evidence that it's impossible for there to be a designer, well, you're simply going to discount that you're looking at intelligent design. But on the other hand, if you have a worldview that allows for a designer, you'll see in an instant what that represents. Intelligence, design. And the point is that science itself does not interpret the data. Your worldview does. Your philosophy, not nature, has predetermined what you're going to see. And that's the elephant in the room. Worldviews never arise out of science. They are imposed onto science by philosophy. Worldviews arise out of strong inclinations of the heart. Now, there's a second elephant in the room. Why is it that many people think that faith and science are at odds? It's because so many of us have a flawed understanding of both science and history. We already saw that the Galileo story was falsely taught and believed, but there's more. How many of us were taught that a very strong case can be made that the cause of the modern scientific movement is Christianity? Indeed, most modern people think science arises out of some kind of an anti-religious view, and that's entirely false. Look at the evidence. The early scientists who gave way to the modern scientific movement, men like Nicholas Copernicus, Sir Francis Bacon, Johannes Kepler, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, the list goes on and on. These men who gave us the scientific revolution were all Christian. It is, in fact, become conventional wisdom that it was the Christian worldview that was necessary in order to even have a scientific movement. Well, why is that? Well, historian Rodney Stark writes as follows. He says, Christianity depicted God as a rational, responsive, dependable, and omnipotent being, and the universe as his personal creation, thus having a rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting human comprehension. That's what's called a worldview, and such a worldview is necessary to begin the scientific enterprise. See, what if you believed, as the Romans did, that the gods were fickle, constantly changing the rules? Well, in that case, no foundation for science is possible. Or what if you believe that there was no God, and therefore, there was no basis for knowing ultimate reality and ultimate truth? Again, there would be no foundation for the birth of science in that worldview. And that's why Nobel Prize-winning biochemist Melvin Kelvin, in his book entitled Chemical Evolution, would say, and I quote, "...the monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation for modern science." You see, when people wonder if Christianity can coexist with science, we must help them to see what science, in fact, is. It's the story of a Creator who is good and consistent in all His ways. It's the belief that the Creator is not deceiving us, but that we can trust what our eyes and our senses comprehend. It's the story of Psalm 19, verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. And because God can be studied, so can his creation. And it is this certainty that leads men and women to want to discover what it is that the Creator has made.
0: February is a critical month for raising funds to support the international ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. The primary focus continues to be India and surrounding areas, providing Bible teaching resources that include the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld, aired and distributed across India throughout much of Asia and the Middle East. Other efforts include partnering with Back to the Bible India to re-establish a significant, vibrant and sustainable expression of ministry. This month, we're praying that you'll join us in reaching our budget of $75,000. And to celebrate these efforts and as our free gift to you, we want to send you a limited edition music CD created specifically for Back to the Bible Canada called Songs of Zion. This is an inspirational CD performed by friend of Back to the Bible India, violinist Shalem Christie. Call today for your free gift to support these international efforts and to request your CD gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
1: So let's begin by saying that the Bible is not primarily concerned with science. Galileo was right. The purpose of Scripture is not to tell us the details of how God put the world together, but yes, the Bible does say some things that do have a bearing on science, as we've seen. When it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, we already know that we end up in the realm of intelligent design. But as a general rule, the Bible's not a science text, and so Christians never think that it's a matter of faith versus science. See, the real dichotomy is not the Bible versus science. The real dichotomy is atheism versus theism. So secondly, the Bible does say some things about creation. I know what some of you are thinking. Isn't the real elephant in the room the question of evolution and the age of the earth? Well. Those of you who have heard me speak about evolution will know that I believe that the question of the age of the earth and the question of macroevolution, I think those are two different questions. See, I, for my part, I would wish that Christians would not hold a matter of the age of the earth as a, as a test of orthodoxy. Let me say that another way. See, I don't think that we can say with any assuredness that the Bible teaches us how old the earth is. And and that's true for at least four reasons. You see, if you believe the earth is young, let's say only several thousand years old, well, you have to interpret the scripture in four specific ways. Number one, you must believe that Genesis 1.1 is a title and not the first in a series of sequential events. What do I mean? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if that's the title, then everything that follows tells us how God created the heavens and the earth. But what if it's not a title? What if Genesis 1:1 is but the first in a sequence of events? Now, if that's so, then with Genesis 1-1, the entire cosmos is now created. Everything that follows is what God does after he creates the cosmos. How long after the creation of the cosmos does he do what's recorded in the first six days of creation? Well, Genesis doesn't say. Number two. If you hold to a young earth, you must believe that Genesis 1 verse 2 is not that significant. See, Genesis 1 2 says, Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And again, how long was the earth like that? Again, Genesis doesn't say. Number three, if you hold to a young earth, you have to believe that the days of creation are intended as 24-hour days. Now, that's not unreasonable but please understand that there are others who don't agree. For instance, Genesis 2 verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So Genesis 2 verse 4 uses the word day in a way that includes everything from Genesis 1:1 all the way to chapter 2 verse 4. Clearly in Genesis 2:4, the day is more than 24 hours and four. If you hold to a young earth, you have to believe that the genealogies of Genesis do not contain gaps, but list every single person. Now, listen to me. You might be right in all of those four propositions, but you might be wrong in some of them or in all of them. Again, please understand, I don't raise this to stir up controversy. I myself haven't taken a position on this. I'm simply saying that if someone thinks the earth is millions of years old, I don't think it's a matter of Christian orthodoxy. I don't think the Bible ever intended to tell us how old the earth is. I do not believe that the Bible actually speaks to the issue of the age of the earth. But it does speak to a number of things that are related to the creation. First, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God is the creator. He's the first cause of everything that exists, and he creates in an orderly fashion and for the purpose of his glory. Second, the creator is distinct and separate from the creation. Isaiah 46 verse 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In other words, creation may reflect the glory of God, but creation is different from God, even as a painter is different and stands apart from his painting. Therefore, God is not the life force of everything. He is the creator of everything. And third, God is directly involved in the creation at each moment in time. See, unlike a painter, he didn't create the world and then step back. At each moment, his hand guides the creation. Colossians 1.17 says of Christ the Son, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, to this day, the hand of Christ holds the created order in place and continues because of his active involvement in the creation. And fourth, God is meticulously sovereign over all aspects of his creation. Proverbs 16, verse 33 puts so much detail into this. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, again, even the laws of probability are at each moment along the way controlled by God. So what does all of that to do with the theory of evolution? Well, everything. See, I argue that evolution as a theory is directly opposed to the biblical teaching of God's meticulous sovereignty over his creation. Someone will say, well, doesn't it bother you that this puts faith in direct conflict with the findings of modern science? Well, before I answer that, let me read to you a quote from Dr. David Berlinski, a man who did his postdoctoral work in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. Dr. Berlinski is an author and a lecturer, and for our benefit, he's an agnostic. And here's what he said. The problem facing us at the beginning of the 21st century with a magnificent body of theoretical accomplishments, that when it comes to the large body of global issues that Darwin's theory is intended to address, random selection is known to be inadequate, especially when it comes to the overwhelming complexities of living forms. He then goes on to say that the Darwinian theory has placed scientists into a straitjacket that does not allow the flexibility to consider the emergence of various other scientific theories. He calls the theory of evolutionary biology the grand theory of everything that continues to bind scientific discussion in only one direction. In other words, it's a bias, a subjective bias that prevents us from moving forward. So what's our problem as Christians? Well, here's what I think. No, we're not threatened when stars are discovered purported to be millions of light years away, meaning that they must have existed millions of years ago. Look, I'm not a scientist, and I have no way of examining that claim. But my faith is not disturbed by that. But here's what biblical Christianity, at least in my view, opposes. Biblical Christianity opposes unguided, purposeless, meaningless chance creation. Let me say it again. Biblical Christianity opposes unguided, purposeless, meaningless chance creation. And that's what I understand is intended by the term natural selection. We, on the other hand, believe, having been taught by the Scripture, in guided, purposeful, meaningful sovereignty in creation. Let me say it again. We believe in guided, purposeful, meaningful sovereignty in creation— Ah, but how do we know which view is true? And the answer is that science is not equipped to answer those questions. When science tries to answer those questions, it stops being science. It starts to be religion, a worldview. In truth, the real battle has never been between science and faith, but between atheism and theism, both sides trying to use science to make their viewpoint. But science can't prove either viewpoint. Science can only observe what it sees. Science has never observed random, purposeless creation. Rather, modern atheistic scientists presume this is the explanation for what they see, all the while ignoring the elephant in the room. The elephant is their worldview. They ignore it because they don't want to deal with it. They want to confuse worldview or philosophy with science. But the Scripture tells us that God has settled that debate. The answer is that the creator has stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. The real question is the question of Jesus, that he demonstrated his lordship over the creation by commanding the creation to submit to him when when he calmed the storm, when he healed the sick, and ultimately when he defeated death itself and rose from his tomb and provided evidence by his resurrection. Science will never demonstrate that but God himself has revealed himself in the scripture. That's why the battle will always be fought at the cross and never in the lab with test tubes. Science can only tell us what they see. It can never tell us what they see is there for. But the cross and the word, they can tell us what the writer of Psalm 19 declared, that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the revealed word of Scripture, which brings its conclusion to the cross, can enlighten the eyes and bring joy to the heart.
0: John, uh, so much comes out of that message. I think you did an incredible job with it. A couple of things I wanted to say. One was just this quote I thought was incredible, and it says, I think in the first place that it is very pious to say and prudent to affirm that the Holy Bible can never speak untruth. Whenever its true meaning is understood, you know it made me think that wow, that's what the Bible is about, uh, trying to grasp and engage with with the true meaning of Scripture. But let me ask you an, an unrelated question: the whole idea of evolution. So, can our faith and evolution not coexist?
1: Well, I think it depends on what we're talking about, Ben. I mean, you know, sometimes people have used the terms micro and macro evolution. So microevolution speaks to adaptation within a species, and we see that all around us. So I don't know that anybody uh, in the Christian world would ever deny that microevolution takes place. We see it, it's observable. But on the other hand, it's the question about macroevolution, that the explanation of all things is unguided, purposeless chance, And I think that runs directly contrary to Scripture. And even when people say, well, how about theistic evolution? And my response to that is, I think what we're doing is we're confusing terms. The idea of evolution means unguided and purposeless. So that, I think, is the issue for me.
0: Thanks so much, John. We look forward to hearing more tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing about the gospel. So many notes and emails of deep appreciation have been received. Well, Laugh Again is expanding its programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be using one of the most Viewed Resources, YouTube, to present Laugh Again, Take Five, five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. And remember, tell a friend. For more information or to support the ministries of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit Laugh Again dot c a.